Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays Amin's floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get Amin in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app find a location near you at bank of talk to us what would you like the power to do Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever heard mythical stories about Mike Tyson and wondered what he was really like? Well, luckily for you, there's a new documentary series from ABC News coming that will explore what propelled boxer Mike Tyson to fame and everything that's happened since. Premieres Tuesday, May 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern, available on Hulu next day. There were three black men who ruled the world during this time. It was Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, and it was Mike Tyson. And everybody wanted to be Mike. The only question was, which Mike do you want to be? (laughs) Mike Tyson's level of intimidation was unrivaled. Just ask Rosie Perez. Mike Tyson was called the baddest man on the planet because he was the baddest man on the planet. This is a documentary event that you will not want to miss. Boom. Welcome to Mike Tyson's world. 
The staggering documentary event premieres Tuesday night, May 25th on ABC and next day on Hulu. Tom, if I sat at your counter, what would I learn about your cooking? Besides, I'm not very good at it. I'm very messy. I'm like the Shoda of cooking. I uh, I get just stuff everywhere and cleanup takes forever in my house. Mm, I'm OCD. And what I do is I actually subconsciously like put something in the dishwasher. I'm going to need five seconds later. This is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haberstroh. Tom, it's Restaurant Wars. There's nothing else to say. This is the gem in the gift box that is Top Chef. Everybody loves Restaurant Wars. A little different this season because of COVID. Kind of a little twist. It's not something we've seen before. I want to know what you think. I think given the circumstances that they can't just go to a restaurant and have 100 people come um, in the pandemic, I thought it was really interesting because it, it, it the wrinkle, I actually think we haven't really seen very much of Top Chef, which is they got to be the wait staff too. And we've talked about it on this show. The wait staff is a real variable in restaurant wars that can really throw a good team into a into a loss. And I feel like when you have the chef's table, you're inserting more uh, agency on the, the contestants rather than having that wait staff completely shit the bed. So I actually thought this was an, uh, something they should keep around is maybe not necessarily a restaurant wars chef's table, but um, introduce this in a separate competition or elimination challenge earlier in the season. I really enjoyed it, actually. That was my thought, too, is I think – Chef's table is its own challenge, teams of four, three, you know, and you you could even do it at, at 10 where it's five and five. Um, you know, the, the wait, the waiting obviously doesn't require as much. It's not like someone over at table 14 like needs their water or they got the wrong thing. Um, I missed the freneticism. I missed just that sheer, it just the stress there is a like, – like as a viewer, when you see a competitive restaurant wars and those people are waiting at the hostess table and there's no one there and eyes are darting around and the judges are looking at the chaos that's raining down on the restaurant in question, it is just some of the best drama produced by Top Chef. But I get it, right? I mean they're dealing with incredible adversity this year um, and I thought given that adversity, this was really, really interesting – um, and, and Tom, we had an upset, but I, you know, and, and I think that to me is the headliner. I texted you last night without a spoiler, just saying, wow, um, did not see this coming. Uh, you love the team drafting process. This was actually obviously random, but from the outset, what, how were you scouting the two teams? The two teams, the way it broke down was fascinating because you had on Kakasan, there was Shota, Maria, Byron, and Jamie. Two Asian chefs and also two uh, Hispanic chefs, right? So you had an amazing, brilliant just way to blend those two teams in a very succinct way that they had almost like a built-in advantage compared to Team Penny. But, Kevin, Team Penny, I did the math on this, Team Penny out scored up until this competition, this episode, outscored Team Kakasan 126 to 95 in terms of the power rankings or the points, the, the point totals of the chefs on one side, Penny, outweighed 
the chefs on the other. However, I think the chemistry and the makeup of that team, I could see that that Shota, Maria, Byron, and Jamie would have a much better chance than the actual point total strength of their team. Just looking at it on the surface, I was like, oh, these guys are two to five favorites, right? I mean, I, I really thought just the sheer talent on the Penny team would rule the day, but you're right. And you start kind of, when you start working backwards, it makes sense. Like Shota is a great executive chef. Maria is, you know, no, we didn't really, I, I had no idea she would be that great in that role. And it makes sense, right? She's opened her restaurants, you know, and then, you know, Byron's just been turning out good dishes. Are they the most like, you know, charismatic dishes? No, but it's just been solid. He's been cooking solidly for weeks. And then Jamie's coming off a win. You know, you give her two assignments. I think she's the best. It looks like she's the best pastry chef in the competition. You know, so right there, that's one of two. And so looking back, it's like, oh, it, it is interesting. All the ingredients for a really effective restaurant war team was there, despite the fact that, you know, you could argue three of the four best chefs in the competition uh, were on Penny. But they just delineated the roles so well from the very beginning. Whereas I think the other team was like, hey, we're all great chefs. Let's not step on each other's toes. Um you know, you know, we'll, we'll let's split up seven dishes. We know they're going to be great. Was this 2011 Heat Mavericks? Yeah, this was Dallas Miami. This is absolutely exactly what happened. Well, I think we're a veteran team. Uh, we we've played from behind all season long, uh, and the way we came back from uh, from huge deficits all season long by believing in each other, playing off each other, uh, playing good defense, uh, and offensively, I think moving the ball and and having fun with each other. So. This is, this is unbelievable, and the team deserves it. The, the Mavs, Mavs Nation deserves it. Uh, they were great to us the last couple of years, and uh, it's, it's been an amazing ride. Because it just seemed like Dallas and the Mavericks in 2011, the roles were clearly defined. Everyone was collaborating on every dish, and there was a clear theme to the restaurant. It's Kaiseki meets Mexican ingredients. And I just thought, wow. The fact that they came through with that theme right away and executed flawlessly. Kevin, I don't remember a restaurant wars where the team was that flawless, that good. Not just just producing great dishes, but the chemistry, the the um the just the prep it was unbelievable. It was crazy watching this. It was like, when are they gonna falter? When are they gonna have, you know, that ooh, that curveball at the end where something didn't quite coagulate or the way that what they wanted and they have to serve like a half-baked dish? Nothing. Everything was like, this is the this is the best dish we've had all season. And so I wonder why that is. I think it was interesting when we watched the last week's episode and we recapped it. At the end, we did who's gonna be front of house for the team. I think we picked Sarah, didn't we? Yeah, which would have been an absolute disaster. It turns out she knows nothing about restaurants. Don, you and me are going to bust out this front of the house. We're going to make it look beautiful. I'm not great at this. So. No, no, um, I, let me we're, know. We're going to flow it. We're going to flow it. Yeah. I have had literally zero front of the house experience. You'd be like right there. <laughs> but that is one useful thing about working on a team is that all the experiences that I don't have 
Those can be made up from my other team members. What a surprise here. I thought I thought she was a shoe-in for just the bright, bubbly personality and, and just be perfect for this competition. We didn't know at the time it would be tasting menu, did we? No, no. Okay. We had no idea. But even still, she really clammed up on this episode, Kevin, where she was inside her own head. Even Dawn and her, and they were having conversations about, we have to go talk to the chefs. Well, what about? I don't know. Oh my god! It made my skin crawl watching watching Team Penny work in the in the kitchen. So let's start from the top here because you know the curveball is hey here's Kristen, Chef Kristen's here on the show. She's back, and then Gregory are going to be the the judges for this episode, and they draw knives, and I'm like. We don't get the draft. And the funny thing about the draft is whoever drafts first, it's actually a fake bonus, a fake advantage. In the history of Top Chef, if you pick first for Restaurant Wars, uh, you actually do not fare well on the show thanks to TopChefStats.com. And the other thing is on Restaurant Wars, you want to serve first. And so I was curious to see which one, Team Penny or Team Kakasan, was going to be able to get the first serving on Restaurant Wars. According to TopChefStats.com, 11 of the 16 entering this episode, whoever served first at Restaurant Wars had the advantage, won the challenge. And so now after this season, 12 of 17. I'm not so sure. I don't know, Tom. I'm not so sure that really played into here. This is an asterisk. I think, don't we, from observation, even being there, isn't the advantage to going first that things don't pile up, that all the restaurants are sort of starting at the same time in restaurant wars and the judges table just happens to come last by the time the shit has hit the fan? I mean that that's my interpretation, whereas this was – as you said up top, this felt more to me like a traditional team challenge with the added thing, pick some decor, pick some concepts. You know, Now that that's chopped liver – by the way, chopped liver is delicious. I don't know why people say that. Um but I, I think I feel like, yeah, we'll go with the stat going forward, but there has to be a little asterisk. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, and I don't know whether there's a first impression advantage built in there, but I think most of it, 90% of it is just the the backup. And there's just um, – we experienced that at, at Restaurant Wars. Is we were backed up. We had a line out the door in Top Chef. And you had a babysitter, and I sort of went into <laughs> officious mode. Did they rig this somehow that we were, were thrown into the team that was just backed up and it was a total mess, but they actually won, right? Our table actually won the, the evening. Northeast. I think it was called Northeast One. Yeah. That was a good meal, man. It was a great meal. There was a little bit of backup, but in this episode, of course, there is no backup because there are no guests, but Caucasan just absolutely crushed it. Let's go through their menu. Tasting menus have come into prominence. I've eaten more in the last four years than I did in the previous million. And there is, it's more than just throwing out seven small plates, right? There's a real procession. There's almost a narrative thread that runs through there. There's a through line. And wow. I mean, Kokosan, from the concept to the delineated roles, they made so many good decisions. I love the start, that, that cold eggplant dish that you see at so many almost country Japanese restaurants. And then, but let's do this. Why don't we have Maria do a sesame mole to pair with the traditional Japanese preparation, right? And, and it's not dissonant. It just worked. 
Um, so already, rather than it being seven chefs or four chefs doing seven dishes, they're already kind of teaming up thematically. Like like she's doing her thing, he's doing his thing, and we're going to marry the two, and it's going to be blended perfectly. No doubt. I love that that first dish. We'll get to it with Team Penny. They didn't cloud things with an amuse-bouche before the tasting menu. They had that little lemonade thing that was too sweet, but that was it. By the way, that did not look very appealing. No. Not very tasty looking, but too sweet, Padma said. But the second one, Byron and Jamie did a sockeye salmon crudo with a curry sauce. And I was like, every single one, it just seemed like they had been conceiving this dish for years. And Byron and Jamie team up for the second one. It made sense. And Maria comes in with the... Lengua, the oh, tongue sando with pickled yeah. mustard and green onion. I mean – And almost like a French dip jus kind of sauce. It, it just – boy, that looked good. And I, I I always have loved tongue. That's a dish I really wanted, that fluffy white bread that you get. Has the sando thing come to Charlotte yet? It hasn't, but I can just tell you I'm going to love it. I'm with Chef Carrie Barrett on this one. Anything that you dip, big fan. Mm-hmm. Big fan of dipping. The sandos at, at Conby here are, are just incredible. There's also another place uh, down in um, Chinatown, but I'm, I'm within five minutes of two great ones. They've really taken hold here. Lotus root tempura with ume paste, a, a shota classic. You know, this one he didn't doll up. I mean, it was just straight up great country Japanese cooking almost. Like it just, it just, I, I love that dish. Clearly a shota dish, like you said, a classic. And and on the fifth one, Jamie comes in with the short rib. That's the only one, Kevin, that I have dinged here on their menu. Why? Colby short ribs. Everybody loves Colby. It's an Asian classic. Someone had said it was a lot. It was just the, the portions was just too much. And so I have like kind of like a medium grade. You know what? So leave some. <laughs> so leave some. God forbid. Look, I do that thing where I have my, oh, I'm trying to watch myself gay Los Angeles thing occasionally. You don't, you know, one of the things I actually do like about living on the coast is the portions tend to be smaller. There are times when you go to an interior city and like like when you go to like Indianapolis, like the portions are enormous, right? In the South. And there are times I was like, because I'll eat the whole thing. And so I do appreciate sometimes, but like for God's sakes, just eat it or, or don't eat it. Just leave it. I'd rather have too much than too little. 100%. 100%. And and you and I are, are both uh, purveyors of the Clean Plate Club. Oh, yes. I really don't think like I ever sit down at a table and say, yeah, that was just too much food. Maybe on the car ride home, I think that. But never I'm, I'm eating a dish and be like, there's too much of that really good thing over there. You know what's a great NBA portion city? Minneapolis. Really? I feel like every time I go to Minneapolis, there's just so much food on the plate. Maybe it's just the places I've, I've, I've eaten, but it, and it's, it's just so satisfying. It, like it's always freezing, right? So it just kind of warms you. If I'm going to be really full, I want it to be – I'd rather it when it's 10 degrees than 90 degrees. But that's a good portion city. I love that. Hot pot, Kevin. Oh, what a great decision. That got the happy feel-good music, you know, the happy feel-good tune. It's very traditional and homey. All the seafood, all the flavors, the aromatics, you got everything in this dish. It really felt comforting and soulful. It's literally each and every single one of them contributing to one pot of food. But in a way that is harmonious and delicious. Yeah, it's pretty good. (laughs) Seems like they love the hot pot. Dude, they are having fun. It's a very specific little riff that they do when they just get the perfect dish and it's made with love. Oh, yeah. And it's like when Steph Curry's in the zone, like just he's in the zone. Like that's the music. Like, they're in the zone at this point. The hot pot was brilliant. The fact that they could slow cook it and just throw in ingredients from each of their backgrounds and just all have a contribution to this where it's a team challenge. 
They're doing this event. Maria is just working the room. She's been fantastic. Once I step out of the kitchen, Maria is going to turn on. I'm like Monica from Friends, the hostess with the mostest. But of all the things they did in this, the hot pot to me was just so damn perfect for this episode. And it just showed how miles ahead they were against Team Penny. And then they finish with the Tres Leche, steamed cake, basil, coconut, pineapple, kind of kind of the perfect thing for this particular meal. You know, Tom, by assembly, they were the 2011 Mavericks, but the way they played the game was like the 14 Spurs in the final. <laughs> That's good. What was it, game four that was like literally, I think, the, the most perfect basketball game ever played? I, I think I, I've written something on it. I think Jackie McMullen, our, our friend, did. I think Thorpe, David Thorpe's done stuff. Like like it was like the perfect basketball game. It was like that Spurs, beautiful team thing. That's what this meal felt like to me. Pat Riley once called it the best basketball he's ever seen. It was that 2014 Spurs. I didn't think it would be quite that good when I saw the team breakdown, but the fact that they married the Japanese and Spanish name for heart, it just seemed like, Kevin, they could open that restaurant tomorrow. That's how good that meal was. Even Padma, how often do you hear Padma in the middle of a restaurant wars just say, you're killing it right now? Right. It is so rare to get a judge feel so overwhelmed with the competency and the experience, everything about it, that they just stop the the chef mid midstream and just say, just so you know, you guys are crushing it right now. I, I don't know if I've ever seen that on Top Chef. Just to go back to the delineation of the roles, because I'm looking at the seven courses and who contributed. So many smart little nuances, right? Like you have Maria going, being the assist chef on one and then doing three. So by the time three is over and you're getting to your big dishes, she can focus entirely on service, right? Like Byron was the utility man. They needed him to clear. And we didn't see a lot of that, but like he was sort of, while she was, because there's a secondary role also. It's not just, you got a bus, you got to clear. You know, he cures his salmon. By the way, that's a cold dish. So now it, it, it's, it's a little easier. And then he comes in and, and is the assist on the dessert, right? Like the team effort is the team effort. Jamie kind of does a lot of the heavy lifting with the Colby, you know, ribs and, and Shota's back there doing his, you know, his tempura. So like, even the way you look at the distribution of labor, and I think that's so important. I mean, it's not just conceptualizing the dishes. It was just like, like everybody knew their role. Um, there was so much, again, that in and of itself, like Maria's done by three. Okay, great. That allowed her to be Maria. Yep. And they loved Maria's dish. In a menu this serious, I think you want to have the fun, like, sandwich up front. Yeah, it's like foreplay. You want to have the fun up front. Because the rest <laughs> isn't fun. Or- the rest is fun all the way through, but in the middle of it, you don't want to start laughing. I mean, it's... Okay. <laughs> um, but the tongue is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I think this is the best tongue I've tasted. When she said Maria was like, Kevin, we're going to we're gonna get our hands dirty here. I knew, I thought immediately of you and how your team, no utensils. And so the fact that you're doing like a dipping. That would be my tasting menu is like you're not getting utensils. Yeah. But see, this is where I disagree respectfully with Tom. To me, it made so much sense. You have a cold dish, a cold-ish dish in the cured salmon, room temperature, hot, hot, hot. Right? Like like I actually like the sando where it was. I mean, it's also a meat, whereas you kind of start with a veg, a fish. You know, a cured meat. Like, like to me, actually, I kind of really like the escalation of it. The order it was in. I, I, I really do. We've done a, a tasting menu before. Lazy Bear. It was Lazy Bear in San Francisco. Yeah, Lazy Bear was the tasting menu. Boy, was that one of my favorite experiences ever. Oh, it was great. One of the contestants on this show, uh, Joe Sasto, like recommended, he used to work there at Lazy Bear. 
And we went one year and actually I think the the Psalm from Joe Flam's restaurant in Chicago, Spagia. Shout out to Joe Flam, by the way. He just opened up a restaurant, uh, Rosemary in Chicago. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I saw that on his Instagram. What's so special about Lazy Bear is it's not just a tasting menu. It started in Dave Barzilay's like living room. Right. Like it like it was something that had graduated from almost a dinner party, which is really what what I mean, look, there's a formality to tasting should I put, but like a small party, like the person you're watching the kitchen, like it should feel like the best dinner party of all time. You know, a breed between that and an event restaurant, sort of a hybrid. And 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 that you know, Lazy Bear was was sort of the standard, I think, for you and me. Um, I love Orson Winston in Los Angeles as well. They put on a show. It was so intimate, though. Putting on a show, yet an intimate one. They explain every dish. They give you a book a booklet before and a and a little like golf pen pencil, and so you can write take down notes of every dish. It was just such an experience. And yes, it's it's pricey, right? But it's like going to a Broadway show. Like you're going to eat the best meal of your life and also it's going to feel like you're watching just art happening in front of you. It, it was it was magic. You know what else I like about tasting menus? You know, sometimes I get paralysis by analysis. I like not having to make any decisions. Like it, it's the trust me um, with Nozawa here, you know, now retired in Los Angeles. Like there's something really – comforting and kind of stress-free about not being like, oh, Tom, do I get the duck or do I get the, you know, or do I get the salmon? You know, it, it's just, hey, you're going to get a little of everything and and it's going to be curated. And I love that about, I, I've really gravitated towards tasting menu restaurants for that reason. It's just like, hey, I'm going to put myself in your hands it, it um, because you're better at this than I am, right? Like the, by definition. And so I, I, that's another thing I really love about tasting menu. Now, let me ask you a question on this one. Cause when we go to the Lazy Bear, there's a clear like executive chef who's always speaking at the beginning, welcomes you. And then there's certain chefs that pop in on every dish and explain how, why they made their dish. But there's a clear leader. I didn't quite sense that there was a clear leader of Kakasan. Oh, I thought it was Shoda. You didn't? Yeah. You know, like when he, he came up with the Kaiseki idea, but I also sensed that Maria was also very strong in the, in the communication department. So I didn't know if she was more front of, you know, like he, he was the executive chef and Maria was more front of house. I guess that's right. But to me, that's, that's the delineation of the roles that really worked, right? Like, like she was kind, she was going to be the connective tissue. So she was the leader in that respect. And, but from a culinary standpoint, like it seemed to me that like, you know, Shoto was, uh, and even when it got a little bit fussy, like let's walk, <laughs> like, like we need to go. Um, he, he sort of assumed that role. They didn't, they decided not to have an expediter and no, oh, no, actually, I don't know, there wasn't really expedition needed, I guess. Yeah. We didn't sense that. Like when we're watching, we didn't sense that. Team Penny, I thought Gabe was the leader on that one. The problem was he was and he wasn't. The problem is he's a nice guy and didn't want to impose, had enough trust that everybody – and I kind of thought – like I'll be honest. I thought they were going to be fine. Like seafood, that's a good connector. Hey, don't overthink it. Yeah, These are great chefs. They're going to make seven great dishes. There will be enough of a connection. Don't overthink the theme, which is always I think a trapping of this show. It's just like just cook. Right. Like just like generally speaking, if you put down great plates, you're going to win or you're going to come close to winning. You're not going to get dinged. But I thought like you're right. Like Gabe was kind of a leader, but it was sort of like, hey, you know, Don, just cook something that's from your heart or from you that that speaks of you or is yourself. Right. Like, I mean, 
that's reasonably good advice. But at the end of the day, they didn't really ever chart that through line. They never really found other than everything's from the sea. Um, which is like 70% of the earth. Like that's not, that doesn't narrow it down. They didn't have Shoda's vision of how the plates should go with the Kaiseki, right? Gabe and the team decided, let's do seafood as the theme of our restaurant. We'll call it Penny. I didn't quite remember what the significance of Penny was, but they go, all right, now go do your dishes, right? And it seemed very much, all right, Dawn's going to take the first one. Then Sarah's going to take the second one. Then Dawn's going to do the third one. And there really wasn't any of this like collaboration that you saw with the other one. So it was such a juxtaposition, the the way that Team uh, Kokosan did and then Team Penny did. And I think when you look at the procession of those uh, meals, the courses just did not work. And I think that's why Shota with the Kaiseki works so well with them because he already had kind of this template to work from. Whereas Team Penny just, it seemed totally disorganized which dish went where and that really dinged them. But I will say, Kevin. Hello, listener. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that we at Cinephobe love our pets. Zach and Boogie are inseparable. I've got two cats and a dog. And Amin is giving his best ass on performance to convince dog owners that he loves their pet. Hey, Noodle. Hey, boy. How you doing? And Noodle is like, yeah, <laughs> Which is why today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. For many pet parents, summer is all about making travel plans like adventuring through the national parks, visiting pet-friendly beaches, or road tripping across the country. Wherever your journeys take you and your furry friend, you can help protect them along the way with the plan from ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for your eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings, D-I-N-G-S. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer, and I'm here to talk to you about ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that 
out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at ButcherBox.com Dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Dawn, mm-hmm. that's a curveball, man. What she did where she couldn't, she didn't know what she was doing until the very last moment, even though the dish was great, I do think that set the wheels in motion for a not a great night is that they were trusting her. Look, we're, you go do your dish. I don't know what it's going to be, but I feel like you kind of not need to know what that first dish is to set everything in motion. And I thought that Dawn, not really knowing what she was doing and not communicating with the team, I felt like that was just a derailing moment for that team. Dawn's comportment during this entire episode was interesting. A, she might have made like the two best, two of the best dishes they had all night. Um, but we start seeing how maybe the time management issue arises in, in her cooking. Um, as you know, the Myers Briggs personality thing is like my astrology. I love it. And, you know, one of the four metrics is are you a P or are you a J, perception versus judgment, which is a weird title. What it basically means is, do you feel more most comfortable in life when you're in the process of deciding things, like setting things in order? Or do you like to keep as many doors open as possible for as long as possible? Does actually closing yourself off by committing make you nervous? She is the latter to a radical degree. What do you think I am? You and I are both J's. Yes. It's not a problem when she's cooking for herself. This is my creative process. But like, I do feel like, look, you can't blame her for the miscues. Like there's nothing. She, she, she deserves no blame for the fact that Sarah just, you know, delivered a couple clunkers or at least one clunker, but it does sort of for, it's not great teamwork. It's not, it's not collaborative in a way that I think the challenge demands collaboration and and like i get it i that's the way she works and man you can't fault the way she works i mean she's cleaning up in this show tom i mean we've talked about the fact that i think like i think she's got a shot like she is just cooking her ass off but this is more than creating two dishes by the way the scallops should have gone after the pasta after the salmon skin bok choy but let's run through it one one at a time because this is because i think you, you get to see the lack of through line when you actually go through it. Tom, like, what did you think of that amuse? The amuse bouche, apparently the texture was off, was not, it was too hard to eat. It was, uh, the, the tostada was actually bigger than the first dish. And so it didn't really feel like a, a taste, a little taste before. I thought that just was a bad idea. It's not an amuse, Tom. It's not an amuse. You've been to these places. It, it literally just, it's supposed to be the little taste. It's, it's supposed to be actually be part of the fun of the amuse. It's, it's like, it's a little jewel, right? Like it's just a little. It's a tiny spoon. Yeah. And it gets you sort of going. It, it, by the way, it should be more technical than his. I mean, to me, technique is always the trademark of an amuse-bouche, like you've done something really delicate and it should just be the slightest. I, I don't want – like amuse-bouche shouldn't be this like big-ass tortilla. And by the way, if you're going to do the seafood, raw seafood, like dice it up like ceviche. 
don't give me a hunk of raw fish on a thing that's already like tostadas are already kind of tough to eat with your hands. Like it's going to crumble. It's kind of a mess. I'm not as weird on messy food as some people like I'm happy, fine getting messy, but like there's nothing. Can we just call it what it was? It was dish one B, as you said, they didn't even belong. It wouldn't even be the first dish. It's a second dish. Like it's, it's not, but it's not an amuse bouche. Like cut the shit. Like it's something you wanted to make because you love making tortillas the way you love making mole. Like you like to show off that you can do that stuff, you know, and by the way, I love gay, but it's like, like he shows his hand and his vanity at times. Like, is it Top Chef or Top Mole, Tom? <laughs> is it Top Chef or Top Top Tostada? Top Tortilla, yeah. You wanted to do your thing. And and again, cube up the damned fish. Like, what is that huge fillet? Why does it look like someone is like is coming off the freaking like fishing boat, like holding the thing, like the twenty four hundred pound fish, like from the crane? Like, it's just come on, man. It's awful, awful idea. It was awful execution. I mean, the, the fact that you're gonna have a crumbly tostada to begin, like, I'm okay with messy, but what I hate is when you bite into. Like, I've never understood, Kevin, in my life, why hard tacos are a thing. Never makes sense. As soon as you bite into it, it crackles and then the juices fall everywhere and it's just – it's a mess. And I get like stressed out eating a hard talk into a hard taco. Same deal with this tostada. The first bite that they take, everything just falls apart and the whole idea, the concept of the dish just was awful. I hated that. I have a book for you. One of Los Angeles' greatest cultural critic, he had a column for many years called Ask a Mexican, is Gustavo Arellano. And he had a book called Taco USA. I think it's like about 10 years old, but it kind of walks through the sort of the way the hard shell taco kind of became the thing. Like it was actually a thing that people started making at home. Like, cause it all really did. It was like, you throw some ground beef in a pan you buy the, the pre, you know, um, you know, the old El Paso hard tacos, you get some shredded cheese from the dairy section. Like, like it's actually, but it was this real fad, um, in the, in like the late seventies, early eighties. Like I remember eating them, um, like taco night and, um, but it, I'm with you cause it does talk about the hard shell taco and I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan. I'm going to get that book, by the way. I have a distinct memory from my childhood being like, mom, why do we do this? Like, why do we do the hard shell taco? Can we just go with like a burrito style? And she's like, yeah, we can. And then from then on, the Haberstro house, whenever we had taco night, we just got rid of the uh, Old El Paso uh, hard shells. We went with the soft shell. So just kicking things off. It's like a pitcher just throwing a, a OO pitch right over the plate and someone just mashes it over the fence. You're playing from behind from the beginning. And that stresses everybody out. So even if the judges hadn't gone to a complete perfect game on the previous restaurant war team, it's a bad start. And then Don comes in with the crab and caviar, magically puts together this dish that I thought was going to be a mess because she hadn't conceived it. She was just late. And it actually works out pretty well. Oh, they loved it. And it's really – you're starting to see kind of Don's identity as a chef, right? One part technical, you know, island influences. She loves like a corn cake, corn puff, grits cake. Like like there are always these components that are familiar to her, but it's just so – it works so beautifully together. And um, they loved it. It's something I totally wanted to eat. And and again, as you said, she figured it out exactly – two and a half minutes before she actually served it, which is, which is in and of itself. I'm always amazed at those people as such, like, I'm such a planner to a fault, like people who can just wing it until the last minute 
and and pull stuff off. I don't care what it is, a, a feature, a meal, whatever it is. Like I'm just always amazed at those people. Now let's get into Sarah. We haven't talked about her yet. Kevin, I'm starting to sense a theme here. She does this like white sauce yogurty thing on every dish. Mother yogurt. Every dish she's done this season, she's incorporated yogurt. It's worked up up until this point. It's worked fabulously for her. But here she does this halibut with an ajo blanco sauce with tomatoes. It needed acid, apparently. This is like a Grateful Dead concert. It needs acid. <laughs> Sarah was just totally out of it um, on this whole thing. She, What happened to her bubbly personality? This was like she totally ch- transformed on this episode. I don't know whether it was she had bad chemistry with Gabe or, or Don or Chris. I don't think it was that – I just think she ju- – this is just not her wheelhouse. A couple of things. I mean one is you know, we saw her flaw. She's not a great technical chef, number one. Number two, yeah, I don't like a lot of cream on my raw fish. There's some good ceviches where they have sort of a cream base, but it is still – it's not – like it's, it's, it's been thinned. It's, a, it's almost like a coconut cream, but it's, it's, it's still the texture of – you know, a, a straight liquid. Like I don't want someone dumping a lot of thick cream on my fish. You know, number three, halibut, not a, I, there's no fat. It's just so, I'm so over halibut, Tom. Like it's the healthy person's thing to order on the menu. And I've had some really nice ones. Suzanne Goyen always did a great one at Luke, but like, I mean, halibut's boring. Um, and it doesn't like, I kind of like fattier fish for my crudos. I just do. Yeah. You know, and I want acid and brightness. If you're going to do that cream, for God's sakes, brighten it up a little bit. It looked terrible. I'm sorry. It looked gross. It just <laughs> – yeah. and by the way, she has done so much great food. It kind of broke my heart. As you know, she's one of my top picks. I love Sarah. I like the self-deprecating shtick. But at a certain point, like – like, I, look, I, I don't want – I think crudos are pretty freaking easy. I think for an advanced chef, a crudo should be a slam dunk. You should be able to nail a crudo. It is such a crowd pleaser. You know, like it doesn't require that much. It is fish and acid, a spice note. Like it's just, you know, if you want to go crazy, you know, you can do like a cherry water or something. You know, those little late in the season in Portland for that. Like, like it's just so freaking easy to do. There's a reason that your boy, who was it, Jeremy? Yeah, Jeremy Ford. Got ridiculed for being top crudo, right? Like I think a lot of the other chefs. But but that the reason they turn their nose up is it's not hard to do. You should – let's put it this way. Tom, you should never, ever go home for a crudo. In fact, I would like to know from Lynn or you, has anyone ever before gone home for a crudo? Very rarely, I'd imagine. I don't know if it's the high ceiling, but there's a certain high floor with a crudo. It's hard to go home with a crudo. It is the missed uncontested layup of Top Chef to blow a crudo. It's not hard to do. Like your boy Kevin can do a crudo here every night. Like it's not hard to do. Like I don't know where it went wrong for Penny. Don, you know, had a tough time figuring out what dish she was going to do. Maybe that threw everybody off, but it just seemed like someone pooped in the pool on this one where the, they, the whole vibe was, they're walking on eggshells. They could feel it. This is uncomfortable. We'll get to that dish, but it was just, Sarah epitomized how the energy was sucked out of the room, that you never got any of that Sarah bubbly, bright personality on this. Even when presenting her dish, she didn't seem confident. She was a nervous wreck. The whole environment in that thing was a was a pressure cooker. Here's an idea that they could have 
wed together and actually speaks to Dawn. If you're going to do seafood, let's they obviously needed to be more specific. She does beautiful island notes, right? Caribbean. Gabe does beautiful Mexican notes. Now, there are a million, zillion regions of Mexican cooking, and he tends to be over you know, more in the interior on the West than, than like the Yucatan. But why not do, and, and you can come up with a cool name, like the Caribbean coast, right? Because you know how like the, like the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, it's sort of a, like it's a crab shape, you know, and it, it, you know, you, so you've got this sort of region of water that extends from the Yucatan Peninsula all the way into the Caribbean islands, right? So you got Mexican, you got Jamaican, you know, Creole, like you've got all of those things, you know, Sarah could have conformed. It would have been fine. She does probably does beautiful fish when she's not throwing friggin' yogurt on it. Um, you know, Chris come, is, is of Haitian descent, right? Like why not do the Caribbean sea with Mexico, Haiti, Jamaica? Like that would have been a really, cause now Dawn can go off and do her thing. Now Gabe can go off and do his thing. Now Chris can sort of, you know, tap that 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 gear that he has and then sarah can just you know they're, they're wonderful things sarah can do she's she's an adapt she can adapt she's a pretty adaptable chef um and that's where they kind of went wrong it's just they made seven dishes irrespective of what the other person was doing just like hey use seafood it's a pescatarian menu with no coherence don goes with the scallop with the tasso ham exo sauce i mean come on best dish on their menu apparently along with the kelp ice cream yeah sounded amazing by the way should have gone later that's almost your pre – like here's how it should have gone. I mean get rid of the tostada. If you want to do a muse, make it Dawn's because it was a cute little thing. You know, they have two raws, but OK, go with the tostada, then the halibut. Then kind of the salmon skin bok choy kind of go into salad. I mean it's a veg, right? Then you go into your pasta course. Then you go into your kind of substantial, your seared scallop with creole, your octopus with molly. That's the order you do it in. Sarah again with the salmon skin. I think it was Melissa saying, I feel uncomfortable sitting here. At that point in the dinner procession, she just straight up said it out loud. What everyone was feeling that it is just straight uncomfortable. The salmon skin, Tom actually really liked the dish. And Gail, I think, liked it too. I mean, there there seemed to be a consensus that like it was a good dish, but weirdly placed given that it didn't have it was more of an accompaniment right yeah i think gail had the most trenchant comment of the night or maybe it was padma but it was like and i was with them where's my piece of fish where is my piece of fish like you're i'm going to a seafood tasting menu i want that sixth course and and i realize octopus can kind of work as an entree i still i think there's a reason you don't see octopus on the entree section you see it in the sort of starter section in every place you and I go. But like, where's my piece of delicately cooked fish? Where's my Branzino? Where's my miso black cod? Where is my fish entree? I can't believe you did seven courses of a seafood menu and you don't serve me a substantial piece of fish. Yeah, yeah. And I guess you put that on all of them is that no one was like, yeah, let's do a a whole fish. Like, let's just have a, a Branzino or a trout or whatever it is. Just like, let's throw it out on a plate and have like that being the signature entree item on the, on the menu. They had six, seven different starting starter uh, plates and putting the, the salmon skin in here was misplaced. And then Chris, well, one last thing on Sarah, again, you had that like white sauce on there. 
you know what what the deal is with Sarah and having this yogurt thing going on. The motif of, of having this white you sauce. Don't get me wrong, Tom. Like I loved when she used yogurt with like like you're doing like a lamb, you know, and you get like a awesome yummy yogurt sauce with pomegranate seeds in it. Like like I love yogurt actually, and I like that with the appropriate dish, right? Like I just it's not a to me it's a lovely complement to a heavier dish, right? You get that tang. If, if you got a fatty meat, like a lamb, like, like to me, I don't, I don't have a problem with her yogurt thing, but for God's sake, know when to leave it at the door. It's every dish, every dish. I mean, it's not necessarily a yogurt. Yeah. I didn't know if that was yogurt. It was like cream, like heavy cream or whatever it is. Something that's not translucent, that is white, basically. So Chris comes in and he does a pasta and there was disagreements about how much yolk to put in there or how much egg to put in there. And it ultimately comes out to be pretty dry and crumbly and wasn't cooked properly. The pasta with the shrimp and tomato broth, I got to say, it looked great. Like the idea mm-hmm. of a pasta in any sort of broth. And Kevin, if we want to talk about winning dishes, if broth is in the dish, I got to imagine it's one of the highest win percentage on Top Chef. Like if you have a, a dish with broth, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's got a it's got a Greg Maddox win percentage in there. Yeah, I you know I finally during quarantine made a dashi mm. and it was good, and it was good and like it's like I I, I want to kind of do I haven't I kind of did it on its own as, as as sort of a test kitchen thing but I want to kind of get like a nice piece of fish and put it in like a deeper plate with with the dashi I always love that and maybe some mushrooms and stuff but um yeah Chris o for two on pastas probably don't want to go there was it Melissa who said that like there were two great tastes in my mouth I'm fine. You know that there was it was still tasted great. The only thing that was wrong was the texture of the pasta, but the like the broth was deep and amazing. The actual filling was really good. Um, again, weirdly placed. There's a reason when you go to Italian restaurants, there's like the pasta course and then the mains. This was a little late in the day, I think, for that. But uh, again, weird placement. Were you worried that he was going to go home? No, because with the kelp ice cream, it's so clear. Like, and also Sarah just didn't give them anything great. It was one of the most honest moments of the night where you just saw that Team Penny was going to be a mess was when Chris said something to the effect of, we're having a blast, can't you tell? And it was like dead air after that, where he's serving the chefs and they ask, you know, how's it going? It seems like a lot of fun over there. And he's like, yeah, we're having a blast, can't you tell? And that was just the truth serum on the whole night was Chris just saying that was like, yep, you guys can feel it too. You know, the pasta dish didn't work. Uh, He came through with the kelp ice cream, but you know, we talked a little bit about Gabe's charred octopus. It seemed fine. He did another mole. Whereas Maria had the one mole and it was the best of the night, apparently. The sesame mole on the first dish. I'm a sucker for a good charred octopus. I love octopus. And like if it's if it's on the menu, like just like we said with mushrooms, like I see a charred octopus, it's very hard for me not to order that. He didn't nail that dish. But I would say when you when you go and finish with the kelp ice cream where Dale Talde is saying, I want another one. I want a second helping. It's very rare you see that on Top Chef. We have a kelp ice cream with a coconut meringue, toasted hazelnut, and a seaweed salt. Wow. Points for getting something from the ocean other than sea salt into dessert. Thank you. This is, this is the best thing I like. I mean, I expected to hate this dessert and I really love it. It's really innovative. I don't know if it's because we're in Oregon and hazelnuts are amazing, but the hazelnuts and this are amazing. Can we run that back? That was so good. I'm dead serious. I'd love that dessert again. Sure. That was so good. Yeah, would like one more, please. <laughs> At least they ended with sticking the landing on that dish. And it probably saved Chris. Although I don't know. I mean, I, I think, again, the tortellini, it was the texture, but they all, they love the broth. They love the filling, et cetera. 
That's all she wrote. I mean, it, it's really a strange outcome for a team that featured Gabe, Sarah, and Don. Chris has u- his utility as well. Chris has a restaurant. Gabe has a restaurant. Don has a restaurant. It was just a strange outcome, but I do think it was just not enough connective tissue with the motif. You know, seafood is seafood, but then they all went off and did their own thing. It's funny. I don't see one dish here where anybody worked with anybody else. I'm looking at the, the seven dishes up top. Other than Shota's lotus root and Maria's sando, every dish was collaborative. Every single dish was five of the seven dishes were collaborative. And you know what? Tongue sando doesn't really require it. Lotus root tempura with the ume paste doesn't require it. Like, like to me, that's the story. I'm looking down seven single chef dishes, five collaborative dishes on the other one. And you would think that the collaborations would make it more difficult because there's a certain teamwork with that. Whereas seven silo dishes just seems like, all right, go off to your dish and then we'll present it. It was, it was the opposite. It was, it was, it just seemed like Kokosan knew what they were doing, the teamwork involved, the ambiance, like even Shota was saying like, Hey, on these tasting menu things, you just got to be really quiet. And the other team was quiet in the worst way. It was too quiet, and you could feel it. I am lost for words for the first time in 39 years. Good job, Amita. I'm extremely proud of this one. <laughs> Thank you. But I would not be here if it wasn't for Coco Zone. You're all winners, but Maria, yeah. your service was exceptional. This is your first win. Yes, it is. <laughs> How does that feel? Odd. <laughs> Let's hit on Maria real quick. She wins. She cries again. I think she's eight for eight on episodes where she cries. I love Maria. Absolutely so excited for her that she won this episode after being called Middle Maria by Pack Your Knives all throughout the season. She comes out on top. She's marvelous Maria today. Yeah. What a great win. And I, you know, I loved her temperament and the front. It wasn't like she was bubbly. I don't love bubbly. I just kind of want pleasant competence. She was delightful. It was such a great vibe. She had fun with them. They had fun with her. Tom, I don't think it's a coincidence that the team that assumed the usual structure of a restaurant war team, right? Front, executive chef, two kind of utility line cooks. Like, it, it, it worked, right? Whereas the other team was like, woo it's just, it's not restaurant wars. Let's just everybody go on their own. But Maria brought that to fruition. Like, it felt like a real restaurant. It was an actually tasty menu restaurant. My fantasy team, I had Maria, Byron, and Jamie on this team. You had Shota get in the top. So you got five points for Shota being in the top uh, group there. Jamie, Byron, and Maria, my team. M- Maria gets the victory. Great showing for her. But Sarah, I can't remember a time that a chef went home at this stage. Like there's been a couple where they win three and then they go home or something like that early. But I was stunned. When I heard that Sarah had no front of house experience at all, man, that was maybe a harbinger of what was going to happen here. Because it just, it was not her episode. The dishes didn't work. Her energy didn't work. When they were discussing the concept of their restaurant. No strategy, strategy. Just make (laughs) delicious food. (laughs) That line, I think, was prophetic. They had no strategy. They had no strategy. And she picked up on it. They didn't taste their food, by the way. She was also said, the time for us to taste our food is long gone. It was a mess. And I'm sorry to see Sarah go home. She goes to Last Chance Kitchen. Kevin, when did it start to hit you that she was going to go home? At the judges table, I was like, ah, you know, Sarah's not going to go home. And then I was looking at the roster and I was like, wait a minute. 
think Sarah's going to go home. Who else is going to go home here? It occurred to me when Chris's dessert was great. I thought she'd be okay. I, I didn't have confidence that Chris was going to execute his pasta. It just makes me nervous. I just don't think it's a, it's a skill he's got down. And by the way, there's no crime in that. It's just it's not his thing, but he insists on doing it. Um, but when he nailed that dessert, there was like, ain't no way he's going home. It's absolutely done. Gabe is not going home. Nothing Sarah did excited them. Sarah, please pack your knives and go. Thank you for the opportunity. It was super fun. <laughs> it's not over yet. Kristen's proved that Last Chance Kitchen actually works out for a lot of people, so we'll see you there. Thank you. Hopefully you keep cooking those quirky dishes. <laughs> Thanks. Good luck to you, Thanks. Sarah. What? I'm ready. What? No. No, you're not. Are you kidding me? Honestly, I thought it was me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I've made myself more vulnerable than I ever have. And in return, I finally gave myself a chance. I'm super happy that I did this. Yeah. It's just another step in my personal journey here of learning who I am and how to accept myself. I thought this was a, a good restaurant wars considering the circumstances you felt pretty good about um, how they executed this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it, it's what you had to do. I missed the freneticism of, of a packed house. Like I just hearing it like it, it just that is there's so much kind of inherent tension in a normal restaurant wars, this was much more of a regular challenge. But again, I can't begrudge the show that they they just they did I think a great job. Um, hey, Last Chance Kitchen's gotten interesting, man. Really interesting. Uh, you had Avashar and Sasha going head to head in a bloody battle. Um, they both do a blood sausage. Sasha, I I I just think I love her. Um, I I wish I traded for her early on. Like when she went to Last Chance Kitchen, maybe I should have done it then. But um, she's she's just she's great. And I wanted to ask you, where are you on like the blood in the food? Does it weird you out at all? Nah, I'm a guy who kind of likes organ meats and 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 weird shit like that. Mm. Doesn't bother me at all. When I used to eat sausage, I liked the blood sausage. Blood oranges, I have five in the fridge right now. Like that's my winner go-to and it's because it looks beautiful in salads. Beets are great. I have like on my list of things to do a beet puree now because um, I'm, I'm having fun with the puree process. By the way, Malarkey gets an assist and I want to thank him again. He gave me, you know, knowing to get rid of the moisture is, is key. And boy, Sasha makes some beautiful purees, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. She did the beet puree with the onions and the blood sausage. She just knows how to play this game. Yeah. You know, I really enjoyed even with a 12-minute LCK, I liked how she talks about food. Like, she has a plan. Um, I think she understands – she did go home too early, and I, and I think she's a better better chef than, than her placement will suggest. And by the way, Tom, you know, she beat Avashar. Avashar did an English breakfast, an English bloody breakfast, uh, bloody scrambled eggs, which actually I'm kind of fascinated by yeah. and want to try um, with the blood sausage. But um, Sasha's got this vibe. Like, I just feel like she might be the work her way back chef. You know, Tom, we're down to seven now. So I think it's only, what, a couple or two or three more wins? Yep. And remember, Malarkey came on this show and projected that Sarah was going to win this whole thing. And when she got eliminated, I was like, oh, she'll come back on Last Chance Kitchen. I'm not so sure. 
I'm not so sure. Sasha's this is this is her wheelhouse. Like she's she's incredible in this uh, in this competition, and I feel like there is um like if you could pick Sasha versus the field, I think you're taking the field there. Or do you, are you so confident in Sasha's ability to run? No, no. I, I, I mean, Tom, you, we, you and I always take the field. We know better. If you ask me one chef that I think is most likely to, I mean, I, 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 I do think so. I mean, I, who do we think is going home next, Chris? Chris, like he's been stumbling here. He had the kelp ice cream, but it's a dessert. It's a dessert dish. Like he hasn't had a brilliant episode quite yet. 14 points, Tom, in like eight weeks. That's 1.75 points a week. Not great. Not great for Chris. And look, we can be we can be stunned again. Like who knows? Shota might go home. Gabe might go home. It's good to have Jamie back. I feel like she deserves to be in this field. Certainly, if you're looking at the chefs right now, the momentum is not on Chris's side. Maria comes out on top. Shota has another great week. Of course, his last like six weeks on the on the show is five, five, ten, five, two, five, eleven. Like, come on. This guy is just a juggernaut. He has 48 points on the entire overall uh, standings. Far and away the best. No one else is above 40. You look at like Dawn. She's right there. She has her dings, right? She's she's not perfect. But if you're going to pick someone else to to take down Shota, Dawn's up there. Gabriel's up there. And I dare I say Jamie. I think Jamie, Byron, and Maria are in that second tier there. But I, I agree with you. Chris, I think, is probably clinging to the side of Top Chef at the moment. And we'll see what happens in the next episode. Dawn has not made one bad dish. Not one bad dish. Even the stuff she didn't get on the plate was good. And and I just think it's something that I I keep considering as I try to kind of handicap this going forward. If I had to do sort of the Vegas morning line as of this morning, what do you do with a chef who's literally had not one bad dish? Shota's done a couple clunkers. Gabe's done a couple clunkers. Not one bad dish, Tom Haberstroh. Would you put her ahead of Shota on your power rankings right now? No. Okay. And only in the sense that you get to the end and it's your best versus their best. She has the highest floor by far, but I think Shota has the highest ceiling. And I think ceiling tends to beat floor in a final. I push back only on the sense that if Dawn time management thing, like it can go really bad if she can't get a meat on a plate, a protein on a plate, right? There is going to be a point, right, where you do that with 13 contestants, there's going to be someone who just absolutely lays an egg. You do it with six chefs, now you're in trouble because, you know, everybody's cooking well. The standings right now, fantasy team Kevin is up. Gap is closing ever still. 130 to 109. It is close. Again, we're not watching the Last Chance Kitchen up to date, so it'll be interesting to see Sarah and Sasha from Team Kevin. I don't have anyone in Last Chance Kitchen. I have four chefs. I got Gabe, Jamie, Byron, and Maria. I don't feel confident that any of those are going to win the whole entire competition. I feel like your team with Shoda and Sarah and Don, until Sarah's eliminated, I just I'm worried about her coming back from the dead and just zombie style mowing down the competition yeah i mean she's strong this was a real outlier it's always heartbreaking tom the outlier the the chef that's just cooking really well and then one bad move and and you lose your footing and it's done it is a merciless competition tom closing thoughts tom can't wait for next week really excited we're coming into the home stretch here we're not quite at the finals but we're starting to whittle it down and i'm worried about chris But as we saw this past week, anyone can go home. Sarah goes home on this episode. 
I think this was the biggest surprise of the Top Chef Season 18 Portland so far. Sarah going home. For Tom Haverstrow, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. 